You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. At this point, uh, we will move to our scripture reading from 1 Samuel 15. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Samuel 15, uh, verse 1. And it's quite a long uh, section, so follow me as, as I read. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Verse 7 of 1 Samuel 15. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night, And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? First Samuel 15 verse 17 and Samuel said though you are little in your own eyes and you not the head of the tribes of Israel the Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on the mission and said go devote to destruction the sinners the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag the king of Amalek and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. 
Now therefore, please pardon my sin, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return to you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore, and Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Verse 29, 1 Samuel 15. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return to, with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. And Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. These are the true words of the living God. Good morning. We have a difficult passage ahead of us. So let's pray. Let's pray. Pray for me. Pray for God's word to become clear in our ears. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your word that we cannot understand at a simple first glance. I pray that your spirit would open our eyes to your truth and help us to see the goodness of your word that comes to us um, through the word of Christ. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. About 10 years ago, um, after a, a year of leaving university, I had this period of joblessness. And during that season, I ran into a former classmate um, on the train on a weekday, and it was a bit awkward for me. We had this short, awkward conversation. We were in the same hall, the same um, batch, studying engineering together, um, and we were catching up on what we were doing now. And I felt a sense of insecurity in front of this person. And when he asked me what I was doing for work now, I told a little lie. I made it sound like I was still working. I disobeyed God and told this lie because I was afraid in that moment of that old classmate's opinion of me. I was afraid of this guy's rejection of me more than I loved the Word of God. What's one area in your life where you struggle to trust and obey God's Word? And what, what's, what's the lie underneath, the lie that makes us sin? What, what is the thing that we believe underneath that leads us to act in that way. Or if that's hard to, to think of right now, maybe think of the fear of man. How does the fear of man, a deep care of man's opinion of you, affect the way you trust and obey God? Over the last few weeks, we've followed this character, Saul, the king of Israel, that, or the king that Israel demanded to fight their enemies. Uh, and Saul has had a couple of successes, but over the last couple of chapters, he's had some major character flaws. 
And despite Saul's failures, Saul is given one last chance in chapter 15 um, to be used by God as king of God's people. And we're going to see how, um, and these are my three points, we're going to see how God's failed king rejects the word of God, how God's failed king fears the word of man, and finally we're going to see how God's better king fulfills God's word. Okay, so Saul is given a command. Let me read verses 1 to 3 again for us. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. But kill man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. God's king is sent to fulfill God's judgment. Okay, those verses really, really jump out at us, don't they? This is one of the hardest passages, I think, to grapple with as a Christian, if we're honest about the word of God, and we really believe, as we said earlier, thanks be to God um, for, for his words, help us to respond in faith. And that's the beauty, I think, of preaching the whole Bible. We get confronted with passages like this. If you're a lead pastor in a church, it's also the beauty of having multiple preachers preach different weeks. So, <laughs> Thanks, Simon. Let me say up front, so this, this is... Um, it's probably important up front to say that, okay, you can't just look at a passage like this, this should be obvious, and then quickly generalize it and apply it um, to any specific war today. So there's no, there's no way that I'm, I'm going to touch that subject because that, 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 that just is not how we can simplistically apply a passage like this. Um, but let's think of, 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 of what's really going on here. This is a word of God's judgment. Now, modern ears, they bristle at the idea of God's judgment. Some Christians might try and explain something like this away by saying, well, this is the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. He's like a, God of, a God of love. Um, at the same time, some non-Christians might look at this and, see how, and say, how can you believe in a God who would do such a thing as this? But both of these responses have the same problem. We are quick to judge the Word of God. We might not like the idea of God's judgment, but if we're honest, there is something we like about the idea of judgment. We cancel people in our culture for holding certain views. We gossip about a person because of what they wear or something that they've, that they've said, and we hope deep down that certain people get what's coming to them. Deep down, we have a longing in us for justice. It's just that we want to be the judge ourselves. But before we rush to say what God must and mustn't do, we should ask, who am I to judge God? If, as the Bible says, that we are sinners and sin affects every part of our our beings, including our mental capacity, can we really judge God? Do we have a moral rightness to judge God? Let me give some context to this passage. The Amalekites were the perpetual enemies of God and God's people in the Bible. They repeatedly oppose Israel, and their national identity is set against Israel as a nation. From the moment Israel crossed the Red Sea before they'd done almost anything else, the Amalekites 
came up against them with dirty warfare. And we see that in Deuteronomy 25 and Exodus um, chapter 17. So this is what God says in Deuteronomy uh, 25, verses 17 and 18. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came up out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who are lagging behind and did not fear God. He did not fear God. Who were at the back? Who would have been at the back of Israel's, um, of Israel's nation? They deliberately targeted the weak, the elderly and women, women with infants and the children. And this passage that, we, that we've got today is saying that God has not forgotten. Verse 19 of Deuteronomy 25. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. In Exodus 17, write this as a memorial in a book. Recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the, the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This is God's judgment to Israel from, from that day. God was bringing his people into a land where he was going to be their God, he was going to make them a great nation, and he was going to bless all of the nations through them, including Amalek. As God said to Abraham, I will bless those who, uh, who bless you, and those who curse you will be cursed. The Amalekites are the first to encounter Israel on their way out of Egypt, and they set themselves against God's people. They set themselves, their national identity, in opposition to God and God's people. This is not a random annihilation of a people group for no reason. There's, this is a judgment for an evil that was committed. Now, there's a difficulty, right, that's probably coming to our minds. We might ask, how can God punish a people for what their ancestors did 300 years ago? But if you look at our passage, Amalek hasn't changed. Verse 18 is clear. The, the, the Amalekites have continued in their sin until Saul's day. Agag, their king, is well known in that day as a guy who made many mothers childless. God's judgment is delayed, but God doesn't forget. Romans 2 verse 4 tells us of God's judgment, of God's patience. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, his delay is meant to lead you to repentance. We're shocked that God could pronounce such a severe judgment on a whole nation. But maybe what should be remarkable to us is not so much the severity, but that God is so delayed, that God is so patient in giving justice. And Saul actually, in this passage, in, um, in 1 Samuel 15, Saul gives them one last shot at repentance. The second people Israel met upon leaving Israel were a group of people who were Kenites, Jethro and his family. And unlike Amalek, the Kenites chose to bless God and their people. And in a sense, some of the Kenites were joined to God's people through, through Moses' wife. And this is a picture. Um, well, this isn't just, just, just a picture, but this was um, an example of the invitation that all the nations had where anybody could come to Israel, join themselves with this people, um, serve their God and, and worship Him and be blessed through Him. Anyone, Amalek included, was invited. And just before the book, the book of 1 Samuel, there's this book of, of, of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She was not, um, he, she was not an Israelite. She was not, she was not a Jew. 
Um, and she decided, I'm going to, when her, so her mother-in-law was a Jew, there's a long story to her, but basically it's a story of how this woman who was a foreigner decided, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to join myself to God's people um, and serve him and worship him. And Ruth, this Moabite, like several other um, non, non-Jews in, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, are honored in the list of Jesus' ancestors. God has this great plan to bless the nations through, through Israel in that, in that day. Okay, so Saul gives, gives Amalek one last shot at repentance. That, 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 that's where we're. By Saul's day, both the Amalekites and the Kenites, they're intermingled as a, as a people. They're living in the same cities. And so as Saul comes to the city of Amalek, he stands outside and say, says, anyone who is a Kenite is free to leave. Saul I'm sure Saul doesn't know who is a Kenite, who is an Amalekite. He's not versed in all the, all the cultural differences. He's not doing DNA tests or anything. He can't, he can't tell. And so he is telling the people of, of Amalek, they have a choice. They can continue in their Amalekite identity of opposing God and his people, or they can turn from that identity and escape. Anyone who identifies as a Kenite can escape. Those who remain will be destroyed. God's judgment on the Amalekites is a foreshadow for us of God's future judgment on the whole earth if we set ourselves in opposition to God. God is slow to anger, but let's not presume on his patience. His slowness to anger is our opportunity for repentance. In 2020, a police officer in the U.S. sparked a global outrage and widespread protests across, across, um, across the, the earth after he was videoed using excessive force on a, subs- on a suspect, George Floyd, while Floyd uh, begged for his life. And what made us so angry, for those of us who may have seen that video, along with the, ra- the racial dynamics that went with it, it was made even worse because this was a police officer This is someone who was entrusted with enforcing the law. The violent and sinful way he he executed the law disqualified him. It made him totally inadequate to be any sort of judge, to to enforce any sort of of justice. Um, And in the eyes of some of the protests, it disqualified the whole police department because he he wasn't the only one. One of the things that will disturb us in 1 Samuel 15 is that God's judgment comes through a person. It comes through his king, um, his king Saul. But if we accept that God is the judge, um, then the real problem of this passage, and I think the source of our impulse against the, the shocking command to Saul in the passage, that the real, the real problem of the passage is not so much that God's judgment comes through a human king, but that the king himself is so utterly disqualified to enforce godly justice by his own sin. It's like if any of us, as sinful human beings, try and enforce justice, that is going to be such ungodly justice. That, that, and and that, that's why whenever um, in Christian history, um, so-called Christian nations have tried to, to replicate this um, through things like the crusade, that's why those have been such horrible and disgusting abuses um, of the Word of God, just manipulating it so that sinners can exert their role and their power over, over others. 
God's king, Saul, is sent to fulfill God's justice, but before that is this prior command. And we can't miss the prior command, because if we, if we miss that, we're not going to understand the passage at all. Obeying the first command is essential to fulfilling the second command in any sense whatsoever. And that first command is to listen. Saul's disqualified to fulfill God's judgment because of his own disobedience to God. The key task of God's king is obedience to God. The Lord has anointed you king, it says, therefore listen to him. We misunderstand this passage if we don't see the centrality of, of this command. The, the real tension um, of our text, Saul doesn't have any problem with like, going to, to Amalek and, 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 and doing the second part of the command in his own way. But the real tension of the passage is, will God's anointed king obey God's word? Will Saul listen to the word of God or reject him? God's command to Saul is comprehensive obedience to his word, that Saul would reign in a, say, that Saul would reign in a way that says, the Lord, he is the true king of Israel. And how does Saul do? Saul has a complete victory over the Amalekites, but an incomplete obedience. Verse 7 and 8, Saul defeated the Amalekites and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, the worst one of the, of the lot, and he devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. He spared Agag, he spared their king, and he spared the livestock, partial obedience. Now, partial obedience to God's word is total disobedience to him. We either obey God's word or we disobey God's word. And the reason that partial obedience is actually complete disobedience is that we obey with what is cheap to us, and we withhold obedience where it's costly for us. Consider Saul. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, all that was despised and worthless, in verse 9, they devoted to destruction. He, he only obeyed with what he found cheap. He just, that, that, stuff was, that stuff was worthless to him. All the best of the stuff, that stuff I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to spare. because that, He's asking a bit much. If I, if I, if, if I've got my reasons. I want to keep Agag. I want to keep the, the, the sheep and oxen for myself. We justify God's obedience because we think of God's word cheaply. We obey God with what's cheap, only obey Him with what, um, with what we consider to be, to be cheap. Withhold, withhold, withhold what's costly to us. When I got off that train, um, after I told a lie to my classmate 10 years ago, I felt a lot of shame in my heart because I'd sinned. I was, I was, and I was thinking, why did I lie? Why, why, why would I lie to this guy? I can't even remember his name. <laughs> When I told that lie, that classmate's approval was more precious to me than God was. It was more precious to me than God's word. In that moment, I loved his approval more than any of the approval that God had for me. I loved, I loved his approval more than God's word itself. I really wanted that classmate to think, I'm on track with my career. When we make compromises in how we obey God, it's because we love something more than God. What shocks us about Saul is that when he's confronted, he can't even understand that he's done anything wrong. He boasts in verse 13, Samuel, I've performed the commandment of the Lord, 
Everyone else can hear the bleating and the mooing in the background except Saul. Cheap obedience deafens us. The Spirit convicts us. The Spirit works in our hearts to convict us of our sins and to trust God's Word. But if we resist God's Holy Spirit through our selective obedience, His voice just becomes fainter and fainter to us until we can become deaf to what's really going on. Until I'm all alone, just defending my right like soul to live however I want. If the Spirit convicts you today, don't neglect His voice. Now, Saul's obedience is cheap. Saul's also really religious about his, his disobedience. This is the sort of uh, disobedience that's especially blinding for us. In verses 20 and 21, he says, Samuel, I've obeyed the word of the Lord, but the people took the best of the things to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. He says sparing that was all for God in the first place. He was going to make her an even better sacrifice to God. This is the Christian equivalent of greenwashing. Saul's already been in trouble for an illegal sacrifice in, verse, in chapter 13. And notice how both of Saul's major condemnations over the last few weeks have come over after moments of false religiosity. God's judgment is fierce against those who use God's word, who use God, manipulate worship, who use the church for their own gain. And it's really easy to do in a church setting, isn't it? There's a, there's a lot of trust. People are vulnerable. People tend to assume the best of you. God's judgment is fiercest against those people. There's this cold storage uh, at my house, well, near my house, I don't live there. A cold storage, at this one in particular, it doesn't have good stockpile management, um, but it stores its fruits and, and vegetables really, really well. Um, and there'll be this sale on these fancy Korean strawberries for some reason, and they're, they're bright red, perfectly packed, they look so juicy. But so many times I've gone, I thought, okay, I'll buy two packets, I'm taking their ho them home, and then discovered that on the inside, under the first layer, the, those underneath are full of mold. It's like they've been specially packed by someone. The good ones, the new ones, carefully placed on top to cover the rot buried within. Religious obedience is poison because it provides us a way to cover up our disobedience. It looks good on the outside. It hides the rot contained within. Partial obedience to God is no obedience at all. It doesn't matter if you go to church, you tithe regularly, but you're still sleeping with your girlfriend. It doesn't matter if you lead Bible studies, but at the office on Monday, you still treat people like objects just for you to use to get ahead in your career. Or if you look good at church, you've got all the, all the right language, the, 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 the Christianese jargon, but behind God's door, behind closed doors, you mistreat your family. If we disobey God with the rest of our lives, all of our religious offerings they're worthless. That's not what following Jesus is about. Religious disobedience is poison. I can use my faith just to justify moral deficiency. We obey in a way that allows me to control the remaining control of my own life. And we deceive ourselves into thinking that I'm a good Christian. Sacrifices and offerings don't compensate for moral weakness. God cares about obedience over sacrifice as verse 22 tells us. And so, um, in verse, verse 23, Samuel says to Saul, because 
you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. Saul's cheap, religious, and incomplete obedience is an absolute rejection of God's word and God's rule in Israel. And so Saul's disqualified. He's disqualified from being king. He's disqualified from being used by God um, as, as king. Um, and Israel is, is, is in trouble at that, at that point. Remember 1 Samuel 12, 25, when the, when the covenant was, was renewed. Samuel said to them, if you still do wickedly, you'll be swept away, both you and your king. We've heard how Samuel, so how Saul, we've heard how Saul rejected the word of the Lord. God's king rejects God's word here. And Samuel asks, why? Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? In verse 19, what's underneath Saul's disobedience? King Saul will not obey God's word because he's captive. He's held captive to the words of men. Why did, he dis, dis, why, why did he disregard God's command? In verse 24, he, he, he reveals it. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Fearing the words of man. God's, God's failed king fears the, word of, the words of man. That's my second point. Saul's living as if the people have made him king. Not, not like God's actually made him king. And so instead of resting in, in the grace of knowing that, okay, I'm king, not because of anything special about me, but because God's made me king, and because God's made me king, that, that frees me to just rule and, and serve him. I don't need to, to, to care too much about people's opinions. I don't need to let them affect, affect me so much. Instead of doing that, he's desperate to prove himself to the people, to make sure that they're still going to follow him. All of us, all of us serve someone. When we reject God's, God's word, we will just serve another master, Rejecting God's word, it doesn't free soul to, to, to be his authentic self. He just finds another master to serve in the, in, the, in the captivity of the words of his people. So Saul gets it back to front. God, Saul's God's anointed king. He's supposed to obey God um, and exercise godly authority, leading the people in obedience to God's ways. But he doesn't have a personal relationship with God. So instead, Saul fears the people. And the people are over Saul. And then Saul like, twists his obedience to God into some sort of religious worship um, out of obedience to the, to the people, offering up this, this false sacrifice to a God that he, he doesn't know. And so Saul uses God's mission as an opportunity for self-aggrandizement, just to look good in front of all the people. Look at verse 12. On his way out of Gilgal, Saul did something really Really quite, quite weird, and it sticks out in the passage. He stopped to build a monument for himself. That monument said, see, look at me. See how I defeated the Amalekites and led you to victory? Remember this day. Remember me and fear me. It's like buying a sports car to mark your midlife crisis. <laughs> or it's like the career that says, look at me, I'm so successful. Or boasting about your, your exam results. And, and it just as a way of saying, look, I'm destined for great things. Or the guy who works hard to perfect his body in the mirror. I was 18 once too. I'm not saying whether that was me or not. God, God sees right through the monuments that we built to the insecurity beneath. Samuel says to, to Saul in verse 17, though you are little in your own eyes, Saul, 
big moments, big monuments to our, to our own glory are really just compensation for an insecurity because we don't have the security we really need. The heart of it, don't you know the Lord anointed you king over Israel? He's not saying, don't you know you're king over Israel? You're such a great guy already, so you don't need to compensate for this stuff. He's saying, don't you know the Lord made you king? That's what gives you your security in the first place, Saul. He's so insecurity, he's so insecure and fearful of man because he thinks little of what God says about him. He thinks little of the fact that God anointed him king. False humility and insecurity is grounded in unbelief in God's word. Think of the way Saul just doesn't even tell his dad when he's anointed king. He just hides that fact from, from, from his dad. When he's proclaimed king um, before all the people, he's, he's found hiding amongst the, the baggage. This was all just false humility all along. He's so quick to follow the voice of the people, so fearful of the people's rejection because God's anointing means so little to him. He thinks little what God says about him. God's word is a very small and insignificant thing in Saul's mind. And so Saul is very small and insignificant because he thinks God's word is small. He's little because he thinks so little of God. How might the fear of man rear its ugly head in your life? Maybe it's in the form of a white lie that makes you sound better or hiding certain things from certain people because we care so much about what they think of us. Maybe, it, maybe it's in the form of just not being able to be vulnerable with, with anyone, just in case I can't really entrust myself to them. Maybe it's building the monuments of your career, trying to prove your worth to man. Maybe you feel especially awkward and you just brush off compliments with false humility because you don't know how to receive them or we're always slow to encourage others. How does false humility or or a fear of man reveal its head in your life, reveal itself in your life? And what are the lies at the bottom of our insecurity? Isn't it either that we don't know what God's word says about us, or that we don't believe what God really says about us? Imagine if instead of trying to build myself up and make myself sound better to that uh, former classmate, I had trusted in some of the things God's word says about me. I trusted in some of the, the, I believe some of the gospel riches that he says that he's given me, that I'm chosen by God in Christ since before creation. They were bought at the price of God's only beloved son, that God, that God considered us, us of so much worth that he bought us by his son's blood. That in Christ, I'm accepted, I'm approved by God. Imagine if I really believed that stuff, I wouldn't need to feel so, so insecure and, 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 and awkward in that, in, in, in that conversation. Finally, Saul confesses his sin. In verse 24, Saul says to Samuel, I've sinned because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He, he, he gets there in the, in the end. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Okay, this, is, this looks like repentance, right? It's, re- it's sort of repentance, but Saul only gets rejection from Samuel. Samuel won't return with, um, with him 
because he's rejected the word of the Lord. And he says, the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. The problem for Saul is that this is false repentance. Saul's repentance, even his repentance, is still about the people. It's still about his honor before the people. He says, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Just like those beautiful stories, looking so fine at cold storage, pretending that this time they're going to be full of taste and not, and not mold. Saul's repentance is just for show. You can imagine them bowing down before God in Gilgal, religious piety on the outside, but in, inwardly still worshipping his fear of man. Inwardly, just, just, just rot inside. Saul wants to bow before the Lord, before the people. It's all about his honor before the people. And his repentance is conditional. It's, it's all about Saul remaining in control of his own life, confessing his sins only as so far as he can maintain respect from the people. Genuine repentance is unconditional. We come to God and we say, God, this is me. Here is my sin. Have mercy on me. You decide what happens to me now. We throw ourselves upon his grace. Not... Just don't let me be found out by these people. Let me hold on to this relationship. Just let me keep my position. If we're really genuine about repentance, we accept whatever loss comes along with us. We cast ourselves on the grace of God, and we just let the chips fall wherever God decides in His grace. If it costs me my reputation, my job, my marriage, my ministry, so be it. I receive God Himself, so be it if I lose these things, when I turn to him in repentance. We've analyzed Saul, who rejects the word of God because he feared the words of man. Saul doesn't fulfill God's word um, because he's a king that doesn't care. He doesn't care what God says. He only cares what man thinks. And so he's totally disqualified to be God's king. But God will bring his, worst, his word to pass. My third point, fulfilling the word of God. Now, 1 Samuel 15 is a messy passage. There's a lot in there. There's a lot of like, really odd things um, in there. But I want, I want you to see God's care in this passage. In God's care, God fulfills his word. While Saul's busy caring only about himself and his own glory, God regrets. Verse 11, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. In verse 35, he says it again, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What does this mean? How can an omniscient, all-knowing, good God, who's wise, how can he possibly regret anything? He knows exactly what's going to happen. Why would God regret? What could this mean? But let me be clear, God doesn't regret in the same way that man does. Verse 29, if you, if, you, if, if, you, if you can see that in your Bibles, that tells us as much. That would be logically impossible. Rather, very often, God condescends to human categories to imperfectly communicate truth about, his, about what he's like. He, he talks about how he holds us in the palm of his hand. God doesn't have hands, though. He talks about us, how he leads our, how he guides our path with his eyes. God doesn't literally have eyes like a like a human, or how he uses something as a as a footstool, as if God is 
is a, is a physical being like a man. God's just condescending um, to take human categories so that we can actually understand what God's like. And likewise, God's omniscient. He cannot regret, but he uses human language with us so, we can compre- so that we can comprehend someone who is greater than we are, who, than, than we are someone who's just beyond our comprehension. When God says he regrets, he's revealing his heart, what God really cares about. Unlike Saul, who doesn't care about disobedience to God's word, God really, really cares about that. God's all-knowing, but he's not unemotional. And I think actually in, in, in these verses, the prophet Samuel gives us a complementary picture alongside God's regret of something of God's feeling towards Saul and towards this situation. It says Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. At the same place where it says God, God, God regretted. Likewise, in, the, in verse 35, Samuel grieved over Saul. Unlike Saul, Samuel is moved by the very things that move God. And what is, what is God grieving here? What is God angry about even? That his king is such a terrible representative of God's authority, ungodly anger, ungodly authority and leadership angers God's, angers, angers God. Um, ungodly use of authority as a husband or as a father, God grieves about that. That, 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 that angers God when we use authority to get our way, even to, even to manipulate someone else. That, that stuff really, really grieves God and, and, and makes, it, makes me. That's the sort of thing that, that, that God would say, hey, he, he regrets. Um, he's talking about his sorrow over that form of, of, of leadership. Likewise, he grieves Saul's sin, God's great sorrow that his, his people are led by such a sinful leader. God really cares about sin and obedience to his word. He really cares about justice. And God's care is the source, actually, of God's judgment. In verse 23, uh, because God cares, he rejects Saul as king. How can God's rule be expressed through a king who doesn't care about what moves God's heart? And in his condemnation, uh, uh, Samuel says, uh, when he gives God's word, that Saul is just as bad as the Amalekites. He compares Saul's rebellion to the sin of divination. He says presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Saul's rebellion and presumption is just like the divination and, and idolatry of the Amalekites. Something's wrong with you, Saul, if you can be so chummy with a guy like Agag that he comes grinning, walking out of the tent when, when Samuel calls for him. He's just like, hey, it's what, what, what's, what's happened has happened. It's all, it's all in the past, right? We've, we've kind of evened the scores here. Something's wrong if he's, if he's kind of treated that way. God's judgment isn't about being Jewish or being a Malachite. God exacts justice on his own people too, especially on the falsely religious, just as he judges Amalek. Just as God's care brings judgment upon Saul when he's rejected as king, God's care is a source of his judgment too against Amalek. God cares for justice. He cares for the victims of their sins. And maybe the reason we find God's judgment 
hard to accept, is we just don't think as much about injustice as God does. We can't imagine a God who cares this much for sufferers, that he's going to, he is going to satisfy justice. We can't imagine a God who, um, who, who, who is so moved by injustice. When we hear of somebody who suffers injustice, we might get upset for a day or a, or, or a week or a, or a month. We might share a post. You might go to a protest even. But we only have so much emotional capacity. Eventually, we, we get less and less affected by these things as the, as the years go on. But God doesn't get less affected. God doesn't forget. The Psalms are, repl- are replete with cries to God for justice. Psalm 56 says that God stores up each one of, his, of our tears in a bottle. He writes them in his book. It's because God cares that he'll satisfy those cries, those longings for justice. Remember, God's judgment is is exceedingly patient, waiting hundreds of years for the Amalekites, waiting until the end of Saul's life, many years later, still giving Saul an opportunity for genuine repentance. But don't mistake God's patience for for God not caring. That's the mistake we make when we're caught off guard by God's justice. And then we wonder, how is God so severe? From our limited perspective, we just can't see as many of the victims of evil and suffering as God does. God remembers each one of them. And in his care, God's word of judgment is fulfilled. In verse 13, Samuel says, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Samuel said, as your sword has made woman childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Messy, bloody, gruesome judgment. God sent his king to execute God's judgment. Saul is inadequate to fulfill judgment because he's just as disobedient to the word himself. And so Saul's rejected. God promises us a better king. In verse 28, Samuel says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and he's given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, Saul. We're taking a break from 1 Samuel next week, um, but when we come back to the series, we're going to be introduced to David. Um, And if you think about it, how is David better than Saul? Morally, he's not really a better guy on the outside. So David commits some grievous sins of his own, especially when he sins against Bathsheba and, and Uriah. But when David is confronted, he turns to God in repentance. He's not better than Saul um, morally, but he is better in his sensitivity to God's heart. He's, he's better in his, um, in his sensitivity towards the word of God that David's better only because he fears God more. But God has a better king than that. We, David would be inadequate to satisfy justice. Look at what he does to, to, to Uriah. God's better king has come to fulfill God's word. In God's care, God provides a better king from David's line. Next week we celebrate Christmas, and at Christmas we celebrate this king has come. The word of God became flesh 
and dwelt among us. God's precise revelation of himself has come to fulfill God's word. Jesus is the true and better king because he perfectly treasures the word of God. He listens to God exactly. He's moved by exactly the thing that moves God. Hebrews 10, 5 to 7 tells us what Christ has come to do. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written written of me in the scroll of your book. Jesus has come to obey the word of God perfectly. Saul wanted to make religious offerings. It's all false. There's nothing false about Jesus. His offering is just his perfect obedience to God in everything to fulfill the law in its entirety for God's people, for us. And Jesus' obedience to God's word went all the way to his death. It's Jesus' obedience that uniquely qualifies him to fulfill God's judgment. God's king is sent to fulfill God's judgment. How does he do this? He says, a body you have prepared for me. King Jesus fulfills God's judgment by taking the place of sinners. This is what justice costs. God's word of of judgment against Amalek was fulfilled when Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. Messy, gruesome judgment for sin. Jesus stands in that place to take messy, gruesome judgment in the place of sinners. At the cross, Jesus was treated as the enemy of God. And he was, he was cut nails through his hands to suffer the judgment for our sins. God's king fulfills God's judgment through his own body, through his obedience. Our sin cries out for judgment. God warns us in this passage that one day judgment will come. God's patient. We don't mistake his patience for ambivalence. He cares too much to ignore sin. But whoever you are, God invites you to take refuge in his son. Receive this king who came to take your place to suffer judgment so you would never have to. Our our world shirks the idea of God's judgment, but it longs for for its own form of judgment at the same time, and it's in this ever, ever-ending battle towards, hey, who can satisfy judgment best? A struggle doesn't end. Only Christianity says God came to die for his enemies, to pay the price once and for all. Maybe you can identify with Saul in this passage as someone who is Christian. Um, you have disobeyed God, though, and there are areas in your life, possibly, where you're actively in rebellion against him. You don't want to listen to what God has to to say to you. And you might be wondering, am I like Saul? Am I beyond repentance, possibly? Will God reject me? Well, if if we are actively rejecting God's word, then yes, that that, that is sin, that 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 is really bad. But God is slow to anger 
And think of Saul. Saul's rejected as king, but he's not outright rejected by God as a man. He still has time to repent genuinely. He can't get his kingdom back, but he can receive forgiveness. He can receive God. He can, he can come back to God at, at, at any point in his life while, while the Spirit still convicts him. And he can turn to him, ask for, for, for forgiveness, and receive a sacrifice in his, in his place. The passage says that Saul doesn't see Samuel again, but at the start of chapter 16 suggests the reason for that isn't because Samuel cast Saul out, but because Saul cast Samuel out. Verse, verse 35 says Samuel grieved for Saul. And think of Christ. He stands today grieving for you. If that's, if that's, if, if that's you and you're actively in sin, Christ stands bidding you, grieving for your soul, bidding, bidding you return to him. He declares his body. He declares the sacrifice that he paid for you, even in your present sins. And he bids you, come home. Come home to him. Throw yourself on his mercy and be freely and wholly forgiven by your king. Friends, as we respond, if Christ has sacrificed his life for us, if Christ has ransomed us with such costly obedience, let's take seriously the word of God. Jesus calls us to discipleship, wholehearted obedience to himself because we're won by his love. Verse Romans 12, 1 says, says it like this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What, what holds you back from trusting God's word, from wholehearted obedience to him today? Maybe it's, maybe it's fear of man. Maybe it's something else that we just cling to and we, we, we're believing and trusting more than God's word. Consider what God's word says about us in Christ, that, God, that Christ's obedience is counted to us. We're justified by his grace alone, justified by, by, by faith. God's obedience, Christ's obedience counted to us, accepted, approved by God. Let that word sink in. Christ was rejected so that you can be accepted by him. When I say take God's word seriously, I don't mean simply obey. I mean from the start, let's believe what God says about us in the gospel. Let's let, let's let that word, that word of God in Christ sink in. That our sins are paid for. We are forgiven. We are loved and justified, holy, acceptable, blameless before him. Let's not consider this word of God's approval cheaply. Don't brush it off. Let me close with the explanation that the writer of Hebrews gives of the passage we read earlier uh, from Hebrews 10.10. When Christ says in Hebrews 7, Behold, I've come to do your will. He says, By that will, by Christ's obedience for us, we have been sanctified, sanctified, made holy and blameless through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Let's trust in Christ's perfect obedience and trust him today. Let's pray. Father, we've looked at a hard passage, but God, I pray that your spirit would convict our hearts today. Help us, convict us 
of the goodness of your word. Convict us of the, good, of the goodness of your king who has come to judge sin and to have sin judged in himself so that we can become holy and blameless before you. I pray for those of us who may struggle with the fear of man that you would strengthen them. Strengthen them to, to trust and believe your word and to walk in obedience to you. I pray that this gospel of Christ's sacrifice for us or this gospel of justification by the blood of Christ would sink in and move our hearts to obedience and to love your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.